Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Gracious God, do what only you can do. Open up hearts that are stony. Give sight to the blind. Be glorified. Show us Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 6 is really an amazing chapter. And we've dealt with these last verses last time. But I don't believe I'll be helpful to you if I don't emphasize what is here in the text because it's so vital we grasp this. As we look at Hebrews 6.13, we see a number of words, verses 15, 16 and onwards, and I'm just going to highlight them. God made a promise to Abraham. We have the word swear. We have the word swore. We have the word bless. We have the word oath. We have the words the promise, and we have the word oath. These words introduce the theme of covenant, which becomes highly prominent in the chapters that follow. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 says this, Jesus, the guarantee, the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews chapters 8, 9, and 10 show us the theme of covenant. In fact, that's the central theme. And my goal as you sit under the preaching ministry of King's Church is that you know your Bible better and that Christ will become exceedingly precious to you. And for us to see these coming chapters in full, resplendent, blazing glory, we need to see them in color rather than black and white. And we've got to grasp this theme of covenant. Have you ever seen a black and white movie and then later on find out it's been made available in color? Watching it in color just adds so much. You realize the hair color of the hero and the heroine. You see what is before you in blazing display of color rather than the black and white as you saw it before. And I want to give you the 4K Ultra HD experience as you sit here at King's Church with 8 million pixels. Now, I say this knowing that in five years, 
time that will be old hat and you'll say, ooh, how, how sad that is. But I want you to give up today dazzling display of Christ in the theme of covenant so that you stand in awe of the God who condescended to covenant with guilty sinners. We're going to see it in its stunning reality. I hope you'll take this journey with me over these next few weeks. Understanding this, covenant is the structure in which God forms relationship with man. I want to say that again. Covenant is the structure in which God forms relationship with man. There's a theological term for this. We call it covenant theology. And I believe it's the right way to understand our Bibles. That's because God is a God of covenants. And I hope to show you how stunningly significant this is, not only today but in the coming weeks. There is something called the covenant of creation. Theologians refer to this as the covenant of works. I wonder if you've ever heard that term. Here's what we know. God is the creator. Everything else is the creation. And there's a dramatic divide that will never be gulfed between those two. The creator and the creation. The universe is not God, but the handiwork of God. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. We're creatures, always will be creatures. No creature can ever be God, because God is eternal, and therefore a creature, by definition, has a starting point. God never did. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally God. There is one God, three persons. And because we are creatures, we owe God, our Creator, absolute, complete, perpetual, and total obedience. If God did nothing else for us but create us, that's what we owe Him. And we should do that, obey Him, without any expectation of reward. Simply because He's God. He created us and He is sustaining us. He is God, we are not. We owe our very existence to Him. He sustains us. Our every breath is a mercy. It's a mercy that you and I did not die in our sleep last night and that we're breathing right now. Some people say, what has God done for me lately as they're shaking their fist at God? God is actually sustaining you as you're shaking your fist. The Bible says, in Him we live and move and have our being. Acts chapter 17 says that, verse 28. God doesn't owe man any kind of reward for obedience. We owe Him. He doesn't owe us. Let's turn, keep your place in Hebrews. We may be back. It's not a promise. Luke chapter 17. I want us to see the words of Jesus, although uh, he is speaking in uh, terms of the context here. There's a principle I'd like to draw out from this particular text. I want us to see this through the lips of Jesus. Luke chapter 17, look at verse 10. Words of Jesus. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he's come in from the field... Come at once and recline at table. 
It's a rhetorical question, he doesn't answer it, but the obvious answer is no, no, you wouldn't say that. Instead, Jesus goes on, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Yes, that's what he would rather say. That's what would be appropriate for the servant of the master. Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Well, rhetorically, I think the answer in context is no. He could, but he doesn't really have to. Verse 10, so you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I want to pull from that this abiding principle that was taught here by Jesus. We don't owe God anything, and when we do that which is right, he doesn't owe us a thank you. It's just right that we give him obedience. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we're going to spend quite some time in chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 right now. They reveal much to us. God has uh, created all things, and therefore has a relationship with his creation. And that's what is in view in chapter 1. There's a cosmic sense as you read chapter 1 where you're seeing God create heavens and earth by means of the revelation of Scripture here. But in chapter 2, we have the micro. We have not the macro, which is the big picture of Genesis 1, the, the micro, the small, the, 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 the creation of man who was created on the sixth day of creation. And in verse 26 of chapter 1, we read these words. It's as if God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so enjoying the love relationship they have one with another. John 1 verse 1 tells us of this. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As far back as you can go, the Word was with the Father in an eternal relationship. There never was a starting point for the Word. As far back as you go, in the beginning was the Word. He was already there. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this eternal, overflowing relationship, and it's as if verse 26 is a celebration of that. Let us make man in our image. And in our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Praise God for dominion over creeps. Amen. (laughs) Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Look at this, male and female, he created them. Both male and female are created in the image of God. One is not more special than the other. One is not more in the image of God than the other. They are equal in dignity. Praise the Lord. He created them in his image. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what we have here is the dominion mandate. Man and woman are told to fill the earth and subdue it. God is not intimidated by population. In fact, that was his demand. Fill the earth 
with image bearers of God. Fill the earth, subdue it. This is a must, this is not an option, this is not if you get time, uh, do this. No, this is your mandate. Fill the earth, subdue it. God then, in chapter 2, stipulates the conditions in which Adam must operate. And we see uh, very dramatic words as we read. God has not only a relationship with creation as the creator, he now has a special relationship with Adam and Eve, and it's beyond the natural allegiance that Adam owes to God as creator. Now, we're seeing more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. God now promises a reward for obedience and sanctions and discipline for disobedience. This has all of the ingredients of covenant. Now, we don't see the word covenant in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, but I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what we're reading of because we're reading of all the ingredients of a covenant. And other scripture passages will speak of this as we'll come to them. A covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions, one man said. The word covenant is not in use, but all of the in use, but the ingredients are all there. There is blessing for obedience. I believe that Adam would have had access to the tree of life should he have obeyed, but instead there was a curse for disobedience. Keep your place in Genesis. You might release the one place you have in Hebrews and uh, go to Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24. What we have as, in fact, it's a heading in my Bible here, is judgment on the whole earth. And in the, uh, Isaiah chapter 24, I want us to read the first five verses. Behold, the Lord, that's Yahweh, will empty the earth. Notice there's judgment coming on the earth. And make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Just a comment on that. He does this because he has every right to. He does not say, I will do this if that's okay with everybody. Uh, can I get a vote? Because you you know, I cannot violate your free will and all of that. If you don't want it, then of course I can't do it. Not at all. He's, he's saying what he will do. He's emptying the earth, making it desolate, twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. I'd say that's a lot going on. Verse 2, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The message here is, it doesn't matter what your occupation is, you're not going to avoid this. When God comes in judgment, it's going to affect everybody. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languages, languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. Look at verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Now, 
our ears should prick up because this is not a message to the people of Israel, those who were the people of God. This is a message to all the inhabitants of the earth. And the message is, you've broken the covenant, the everlasting covenant. And I would suggest to you, the everlasting covenant is the covenant that we see affirmed in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Though the word covenant doesn't appear in Genesis 2 and 3, Isaiah speaks of a covenant that God has with all the earth. And that's where we get it. The covenant of creation. The covenant of works. And mankind has broken the everlasting covenant. They know there's a God and they're not worshipping him correctly. They're not following his laws. So again, I, get, I believe it gives great evidence to this fact. The whole earth has broken the everlasting covenant, the covenant of creation or the covenant of works. Let's go on to the right in our Bible, to the book of Hosea. Ezekiel, then Daniel, then the book of Hosea, chapter 6. Hosea, chapter 6. We're just going to jump into the passage. I want to pull out a phrase as it's useful for us. Verse... uh, Four. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. In other words, it's very temporary. Therefore I've hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Look at this. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, there's a play on words here. There is a town called Adam, and there is a person called Adam, and I believe both are in play. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And so there's a covenant that God made with Adam. And that's what's in view in Genesis chapter 2. I believe it's a parallel situation. Hosea is making a play on the word Adam. It's both a town and a person. A parallel situation going on here. And it's a covenant that has been violated. Let's go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Look with me in verse... Six, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Genesis 1 tells the big picture. He made man and woman in his image. Now we have the details of how that occurred. The Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, a living soul. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, there are many clues in this passage, I want to show you a number of them, that shows that Eden was a temple sanctuary. I don't know if you've ever thought of it, that way. We think of the Garden of Eden, and it's correct to think of it as a garden. It's described that way. 
but it's a garden temple. It's a sanctuary. There are several clues about this. In verse 8, we read that it was in the east. Trace this out as you read your Bibles, and you'll find that the Jewish tabernacle and the temple and the altars in Israel worship facing east. So there's a little bit of a clue there. It's not said in certain terms, but it's a clue. This is a temple. Did you realize this? Eden was on a mountain. You're looking at me like, what? Eden was on a mountain. Well, we see the Garden of Eden. We've seen pictures of men and women who've drawn what they believe to be a, a, an accurate portrayal of Eden. But though the picture might be true, if you were to look at it, there should be Eden's garden on a mountain. I'm going to suggest that to you. We know that from various different clues. Again, verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Here's what we know about rivers and waters. They don't flow upwards. They flow downwards. Eden was up in terms of elevation rather than on a level horizontal plane. But it's not just that. Well, I'm not sure I go there. Uh, well, that's enough for me, but if you want more, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Let's do some bobbing and weaving. Let's go to Ezekiel 28. And there we have the prophet describing two figures. One the prince of Tyre to the king of Tyre. There's not time to really develop this theme, but the word of God comes to Ezekiel and he has a word for the prince who's the one who's seen. He's the one who seems to be the only folk, the only man that the people see. But God being God knows what is behind the person in charge. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And in this particular chapter, I, like many others, see the prince as the one that is seen and the king, the king of Tyre, the one that is unseen, behind the scenes. It's almost as if the prince is the puppet of the king. And it's interesting that verse 2 speaks of this prince being full of pride and wanted to be like God. Ring any bells? Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud. And you, you said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. This is the man. This is the one people can see. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Go on to verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. This is the one in, in charge, even though it looked like the prince was in charge. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, this is Yahweh speaking, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Look at this. You were in Eden. Did you read that and think, what? This king was in Eden? Yes, that's what the Bible says. Trace out the Garden of Eden, there's only three figures we know of. Adam, Eve, and a serpent. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, it was the serpent. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I, that's God speaking, placed you, placed you where? In the garden. Hmm, Maybe. Maybe not. I placed you amongst the angels. That could be true. But he placed him. In other words, here's the message. I made you. I can handle you. You're right where I want you. God has never been intimidated by this king. God has never been intimidated by the devil. Oh, look what the devil's doing. What can we do? Let's have a think tank meeting, angels. What are we going to do in response? No, I placed you, you were, look at this, on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." There it is. Verse 11, you were in Eden, the garden of God. That signifies the dwelling place of God. The garden was God's dwelling place. And in the cool of the evening, as if you remember, the Lord God walked with Adam and Eve. It was his dwelling place. It's a garden temple of sorts. Back to Genesis chapter 2. Look with me in verse 11. The name of the first, talking of the rivers, is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. God is not intimidated either by the king of Tyre or by gold. He does not say, you know, there's a problem with gold. No, he actually says, it's not just gold, it's good gold. (laughs) And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gishon, and it then goes on. But verses 11 and 12 describe precious stones. You remember, that was a feature of the tabernacle. That was a feature of temple worship. It was a feature of Aaron's breastplate, as you read in Exodus chapter 28. Do we have time? I don't know, but let's go. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. We're going to see that what we're reading about in Genesis has dramatic conclusions in the book of Revelation. There's one message, one author, God himself, even though there's around 40 authors of Scripture. Revelation 21 speaks of the new Jerusalem and a cosmic temple. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. As you and I read on, we speak, we, we read of amazing, amazing features of 
great value in the realm of jewels. Look at me, verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Again, every temple on usually had mountain connected with it, the word mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate or agate, however you might say that, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So it is. There were features in Eden that end up in the New Jerusalem. Again, adding to the idea that what we have in the Garden of Eden is a temple, a temple circumstance. Back to Genesis chapter 2, God's command to Adam was to work and to keep it, the garden. Exactly if the same words are used in Numbers chapter 3, if you have time later, read verses 6 through 10 where you read the word in the ESV as minister and God, but in Hebrew it's the exact same words as we find in Genesis 2, work and keep. They had a priestly function in the book of Numbers. So, here's your task, Adam. Guard the tabernacle so that it remains holy. If you read Numbers 3.10, you understand. You can read that back into Genesis In fact, we've got just a moment. Let's go to Numbers 3. Numbers 3. Verse 6. Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Think of that and then think of the Garden of Eden. Did an outsider come near? Yes, the serpent What Adam should have done would be to stand in his priesthood and make sure that the garden was not corrupted by the outsider. He didn't do that. The trees we read of in Genesis are symbolic trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are patterns of heavenly realities. You remember in the tabernacle, one of the ornaments was the menorah, the tree. And life is then... Condition for Adam upon perfect obedience and death. Eternal death is threatened upon disobedience, eating the forbidden fruit. Had Adam obeyed, he would have earned eternal life. But his obedience resulted in death, death for him and death for everyone who fell, fell after him, came after him. 
Death in all its features. Physical death. That would come later. Spiritual death. Eternal death. For Him and all who followed Him. God in grace covered the sin of Adam and Eve, but at the death of an animal. For Adam and everyone who fell after Him, who came after Him, they were subject to death. Cain and Abel were not brought back into the garden. We're going to start afresh with you. No, what happened in Adam affected Cain and Abel so that they were now spiritually dead and in need of resurrection life and redemption. And they lived outside the garden. Adam was commissioned to conquer and he failed. But there was one who came later called the last Adam who was commissioned to conquer and succeeded. Like us now to go to Romans chapter 5. Wow, this, this feels like a Bible study. You're right. Romans chapter 5. What Paul does is take Genesis, and rather than saying that was poetry, that was mythology, no, he believed in a literal Adam, and the literal Adam and what he did had consequences for everybody else that followed after him. Genesis, in fact, you and I can't read our Bibles, the New Testament, if we don't believe Genesis 1 through 11. It's the, the whole basis for redemption and what sin is and how we define it, what marriage is and how we define it. All of it has its bedrock in Genesis. But look with me in verse 12. Therefore, Paul writes, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. How is that possible? All sinned? You're talking about the sin of one. Death through sin. I believe that there was no death before Adam's sin. Why do I believe that? Because the Bible declares it, both in Genesis and elsewhere and here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which man? Adam. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. How is that possible? Well, we're going to talk about that. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. People were dying all over the place between Adam and Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's going on here? This is a passage that can only be explained by a concept that you and I know about. It's called federal headship. Rather than we as the state of Arizona all marching to Washington to, uh, to vote on an issue, rather than asking the millions of people of Arizona to book flights or walk or get a train or drive to Washington, we employ a representative, a representative from the state of Arizona to go on our behalf and do what we would do. Vote as we would vote. That doesn't always happen, but that's the idea. And when he or she votes, he votes for all of us. And his decisions, his votes, his actions affect us, whether we are watching the news or riding a horse or whether we're, whatever we're doing, what he does in Washington affects us. That's exactly what happened in the garden. Adam was chosen to be the federal head of the human race, and when he acted, he acted on behalf of everyone who would come after him. And in Adam, all of us die. We all sinned in Adam because we were perfectly represented, represented by Adam, and when he voted against God and in favor of the devil and his lies, he sinned and we sinned in him. That's what we're reading about. Look at verse 19. For one man's, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What he did counted towards us. You may not like that, but the flip side is redemption. What Jesus did as the other federal head of the human race counts for us. We sinned in Adam by means of imputation. What he did was counted to us. What Jesus did in his life and in his death is imputed to us. His death was my death. His life was my life. Standing before the Father, I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How? He's my federal head. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. Go on to the right in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 21. For as by a man, that's Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, same concept, isn't it? As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Some people use this verse illegitimately to say that this is now teaching universalism, the belief that everybody will be saved in the end. No, if you read verse 22 it says all, certainly it does, but it's qualified, modified by the next verse, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are the all. All of those who belong to Christ, in other words. So, you and I were born dead on arrival, spiritually. And when you're now a Christian, what has happened is God has 
caused your resurrection from spiritual death. That's what we read about in Ephesians 2. You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. How were you dead? You're dead because of your relationship with Adam. But now you're related to Christ. You're alive and you're alive from the dead. God has spoken and you've come alive spiritually and you are now in right relationship with God through Christ who lived the life you and I should have lived and died the death we should have died. We all sinned in Adam. We all died in Adam. If you're in Christ, you're alive spiritually. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, just as we look like Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We'll be like Christ in heaven. It's glorious. Right. Now we've got this in place. We start reading our Bibles and we realize why Jesus came. He came on a mission to undo what the first Adam had done. He came as the last Adam the new federal head, and for all who believe and trust in him, what he did counts for us. Not what he did in Washington, what he did in Israel, in his life. And what he did in Jerusalem, in his death, counts for us. He walked for us. He breathed for us. He fulfilled righteousness for us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus, the eternal Son, loved of his Father, was baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. And yet, of course, Jesus had nothing to repent of. He committed no sin. And so it looked a bit confusing to the watching world. John was preaching, John the Baptist, the baptism of repentance. And yet Jesus was submitting to John's baptism. He was doing what God required. Why God had required all Israel to submit to John's ministry of baptism, and therefore he knew he had to do it to fulfill God's law. John didn't understand any of this. Here we go. Verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, then he consented. In other words, I haven't got time to go through Covenant Theology 101. I haven't got time to teach you everything that you need to know. This is the right thing to do. This will fulfill all righteousness. Just trust me. And John says, all right. And John was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, basically making sure there's no confusion. This my son has not sinned. He's doing what I've commanded and I'm making it clear. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's done nothing wrong. Everything's good. All right, guys, carry on. Next words. 
Verse 1 of chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Whoa. Jesus was perfect. The Father knew it. And he knew he was devil-proof. And so he was led by the Spirit to be tempted. That's not something you and I should believe for or pray for. Oh God, may I be tempted by the devil. No, we're to pray... Lead me not into temptation. You see, we're not devil-proof yet. But Jesus was. Father looked at him and said, You're good. And the Holy Spirit drove the Son into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now get this. Adam in the garden was surrounded by luxury and abundance. Food was everywhere. Food of the choicest kind. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, and where was he? Not in some beautiful luxury paradise garden. He was in the desert. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry, and the tempter tempted him. What with? Illegitimate food. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, loaves of bread. But he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See the big picture here. Jesus was doing for us what Adam failed to do. Do you see it? He was fulfilling righteousness. He was handling the devil for us in the covenant of works. The first Adam, with his bride at his side with an abundance of provision all around him, failed. The last Adam in the desert all alone, hungry after 40 days without food, tempted by the food temptation to make stones in the bread, succeeded and said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to bow to you. I'm not going to do what anything, anything that you suggest, all the three temptations, I'm not going to surrender to you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to do something illegitimate that God has never commanded, throw myself off a building. I'm not going to do it, even though you twist Scripture. I'm going to live by the Scripture. I'm going to work out what God has said from the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to interpret the text correctly. Get behind me, Satan. I'm not going to bow. That's what he did. Nick Badsick writes this, when God created Adam, the scripture tells us that he was in the garden with the animals. The Lord God gave Adam the task of tending and keeping the temple, the garden temple paradise and of naming the animals. When Adam sinned by eating of the tree of which God told him not to eat, Adam turned the garden temple into a barren wilderness. The world was now a place of sin, rebellion, misery and danger. The second or the last Adam entered into the world to undo all that the first Adam did. In order to do so, he had to begin his ministry as the last Adam, not in a garden, but in the place that symbolized the barrenness and cursed nature of the fallen world. Jesus was not in the garden temple paradise like the first Adam, but he was in the desert with the wild beasts. He succeeded where Adam failed. But there's more. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. How are we doing for time? It's still Sunday, right? (laughs) Revelation chapter 2. Verse 7. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Who gets to eat of the tree of life? Ah, conquerors, the one who conquers. We think, well, I'm not sure I've conquered. Do you know you can be? Here's some good news you're going to hear today. This is not about you performing something that gains you access to the tree of life. We're going to see this. It's only for conquerors. Pastor, it says only for conquerors. That's right. Continue reading. Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That, ladies and gentlemen, is covenant language. Revelation 22, look at verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We gain access to the tree of life. Why? Adam failed The last Adam succeeded. So how do we appropriate this? How do we conquer? Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 4. Here's what your Bible says. For 17%. 28%, 84%, no, 100%. who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Well, well, well if I have faith then, I, I overcome the world. Yes, and you remember, even your faith is the gift of God. This is the victory that not will one day overcome the world, has overcome the world. The moment you put your faith in Christ, God says of you, you've overcome everything. Why? Because of someone else who overcame for you. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except he who does a bunch of stuff? Is that what your Bible says? No, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? He did it all. And by believing in Him, you get all that He accomplished for you forever. Amen. Hallelujah. It's slightly exciting. I was in my study and just had to stop studying and just walk around with my hands in the air. You'd have seen me today. I was a Pentecostal, four o'clock in the morning. We share in the victory of Christ. Do you remember this verse? No, no. Can tribulation, can this, can that separate us from the love of God? No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through our actions, through our stuff, through, our, through Him who loved us. You're more than conquerors. Well, if I was more than a conqueror, I wouldn't look like this. I look in the mirror and I ask, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? You're talking some strange things, Pastor. You think I'm an overcomer? Yes, you believe in Jesus. 
You're more than a conqueror. Huponikeo is the Greek word. We have the word hyper. And we have the word nikeo or Nike. You ever heard Nike? means to conquer. And a huponikeo is a hyperconqueror. What are you suffering with? I'm suffering from hypochondria. No, a hyperconquering. Let me explain it. By way of an illustration. Imagine a boxer training for the heavyweight championship of the world. You see it in your mind? He goes through months of grueling training. His diet is regulated. His workouts, several times a day. He is on a mission to become champion of the world. He goes to the ring. He goes alone. He battles the current champion and fights and lands the blow that causes the ref to count to the count of ten and knocks the former champion out. He's now a former champion. He's now the conqueror. He gets the title, he gets the check, which is massive, millions and millions. And he comes home to his hometown to find that his wife was just watching the whole thing on TV, not even at the event, and was filling her mouth with popcorn while the thing was taking place. She'd done nothing, she'd done no training. She just had watched the event. Crowds lined the street, he was on an open double-decker bus, everyone was cheering him, he was holding up the shield that represented him being the heavyweight champion of the world. Eventually the crowds dispersed. He comes home, opens the front door, and his wife is still sitting on the couch. But he says these words, Honey, I did this for you. Here's the check. Now, he's the conqueror. But she is more than a conqueror. She got the check. <laughs> Do you see what the Bible says? You're more than a conqueror through his activity. What he did. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ won the greatest of all victories. But he didn't just work for a weekend. God's assignment for him was not parachute down on a Friday, call it Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, just a few days of work and then you'll be up here. No. The gospel's this. God in his love for treasonous rebels who sinned against him, sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, living a pure, sinless, flawless life, then goes to the cross and takes the wrath of God due to us for our sins and dies in our place. And three days later is raised from the dead. Having defeated the devil, he hung there and won. He, he hung there in the will of God. He hung there defeating the devil and his accusations against you and I by absorbing in himself our sin. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. He rose again, is at the place now of all authority in this universe. He was able to say, all authority. He's got the ultimate shield. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, therefore, you go. He gives us the check. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Because I've won. Everywhere you go on earth, it's already mine. China is mine. Russia is mine. America is mine. There's no place you can go on sea or on land. 
that Jesus does not say, mine. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And we have the privilege of being linked with one who defeated our enemy for us. So here's the message of the Bible. God demands 100% full, complete obedience to his law. And if you can't do that, to quote my friend Greg Francis, you better find someone who can do it for you. And ladies and gentlemen, we know who it is. He lived the perfect life and died the perfect atoning death. Do you see it? Can your eyes see it? In our bulletins every Sunday we have these words. You can't get past the first paragraph without seeing it. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from the Lord Jesus Christ, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the victorious, all-conquering lamb, the friend of sinners. On the song sheet today, you'll read these words. Christianity doesn't offer a second chance to succeed, but offers a second Adam who, who already did. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of your Bible. This is not for elite theologians who come up with these terms, covenant of works. No. Jesus fulfilled the covenant of works. He did what Adam should have done. And what Adam did affected all the human race and what Jesus has done affects all who believe in him. Have you repented? Have you come to him? Do you believe in him? Once you do, all of heaven is yours forever, secured by not your works but his. You're saved by works alone, none of them yours. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. How does God give salvation? He doesn't find a tree and say, there's a fruit called salvation. No, Christ accomplished your salvation in his life and in his death. And if you believe in him, you never have an issue with your heavenly father again because you stand in Christ now and forever. God would never throw his son out and you're in him. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus who fulfilled the covenant of works. All we can say is thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.